Good morning. I'm surprised any of you showed up today because I'm preaching on something that you already have. <laughs> the perfect marriage. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Let's, uh, let's just open up the text. Um, I'm only going to have it up, the actual text, on the screen as I read it through here. So I'll have my points up and application uh, elsewhere. Usually, sometimes I'll have the main scripture up, but just so you know, either pull out your phone or uh, paper um, book and, and turn to Genesis 2 with us. Um, if, if you're trying to follow along, Genesis 2, 18 through 25. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that name. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So... The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up the place of flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This is, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, Man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Uh, give an introduction and pray. Open in prayer. Marriage here is, is God intended, and, and the result of what God designed from Genesis 2 is a precious gift from the Lord. Marriage has numerous blessings. One sermon cannot cover all of them. Multiple sermons cannot cover the blessings that are a result from God's gift of matrimony. It's the lifelong journey between a man and a woman, and it's intended to transform each other's lives. And and it, it, it transforms one another for the betterment of the other person. So it doesn't just change the person and transform the, the, the person for themselves. It also transforms the person for their spouse. It improves the quality of life for the couple as well as it enhances it. And marriage provides a, a, a best friend, a companion to share your greatest fears and your, your furthest dreams with. Gives you someone to celebrate your successes with and to pick you back up from your failures. You each have someone who is for you and never against you. That's something we all long for, but in marriage, we get it. We receive that. Someone who's for us and never against us. It's a relationship between two humans that requires the greatest amount of trust and the deepest amount of vulnerability. And that union, the union 
of the husband and wife is to be maintained when we're married, purity and fidelity. Finally, the ultimate goal of our marriage is actually to bring glory to God. That is the ultimate purpose of every one of our marriages. And the way that we do that is the husband and wife portraying the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, I'm not naive. I know all of our marriages and don't always operate under those conditions or uh, live in those blessings, if you will. Mine included. Well, none of us may ever just have a perfect marriage. One thing is for sure that if we refuse to live by the instructions God gave to husbands and wives, then we will never reach the potential that we are capable of having in our marriages. You cannot have a fruitful marriage while simultaneously disobeying the will of God. It cannot happen. But at the same time, if you're convinced at the moment, maybe you've been convinced for a while that, that you have an unfruitful marriage, and there's no way that it could ever be restored. Yes, it can. You can have a fruitful marriage. It's only if you're willing to entrust your marriage to the will of God, to turn over your marriage and your actions to God. And in order for marriage to truly flourish, it must live within the confines that God designed it to live within. The first thing we need to do is address the institution of marriage itself. Um, let me open us in prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, as we, uh, as Jay said, we celebrate Advent season in churches of, of, around the world. Uh, they've been celebrating this for centuries, uh, each of the Lord's Day leading up to the Advent, God. Lord, I pray that, that, that you would remind us today that, that Advent wasn't just your answer to, to the Son of God being born in order to heal lepers and cast out demons and, 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 and even to raise the dead, Lord. But Advent is the answer to our broken marriages, that, that, that our broken relationships, that Christ came not just to, to heal those who couldn't walk, but to heal marriages that are so broken they have no hope and cry in misery and just wish that their other person, their spouse would leave them because they don't know how they can go on another day living like this. And Advent is the answer to that, Lord. What you provide through your Son, Jesus Christ, through Advent, which leads to his death and resurrection, Lord, is the answer for every single broken marriage there is. And even for the answers, or even for the marriages that aren't broken, growth, healing, still, is the same answer. Their restoration, Lord Jesus, through the advent, death, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray that we would believe that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so point number one, God's design for your marriage. I've listed four essential components to marriage from Genesis 2. Each are intended to be honored, and each are required in order to 
flourish and to be faithful to God, too. One thing about marriage is we have to remember that, that when we vow to be faithful to our spouse, we're not only making a vow to be faithful to our spouse, we're also making a vow to be faithful to God. And in order for us to be faithful and to God in our marriages, we have to be faithful to the way that he designed marriage. Otherwise, it would be unfaithful. So, number one, marriage is designed to be between a man and a woman. Only. We, we, we see that in, in who God gives to Adam. And when we, when we look at Genesis 2, God doesn't look at lonely little Adam just bitter-patting around, naming all the animals, and, he, and, and looks at Adam and says, wow, this, this guy really needs a buddy to drink some beers with, right? Like, man, he's, he's someone to watch the college football playoff committee picking this morning. That's not what he says. He's a, this man's incomplete. He addresses there's an issue. But he doesn't give him another man. He, he, he says, I'm going to take a rib from you, Adam. I'm going to take a rib from your side, and I'm going to make a woman, a helper, fit for the man, is what it says. Rib from his side. Matthew Henry says, God's choice to create Eve from a rib was because the rib was not made out of his head in order to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be loved. Now, I don't know if that's proper theology, if that theology is correct by Matthew Henry, but it sounds really good. And it does communicate the oneness of the two. Of the male and the female. And their roles together. Now, while Matthew Henry masterfully, I think masterfully articulates the equality between the two genders, Genesis 2 also shows us that the uniqueness of their genders is necessary for fulfilling God's purposes. The purposes that we received back in Genesis 1 to be fruitful and multiply. That's just one of them. Now, you can't achieve those purposes if you reject God's design for male and female. Those just two purposes are procreation and the individual roles determined for the husband and the wife. I'm only going to address procreation right now because I'll address roles soon in the sermon. Procreation is not only God's command. It is, it is also evidence of the natural order, the way God designed things to be. And biologically, we see the ability to be fruitful and multiply requires the opposite sexes. And even if someone wants to argue that humans are capable to reproduce without a male present, by using a woman's egg in a procedure like IVF, that's fair enough. But you still need the sperm of a male donor in order for that to be possible. Uh, so therefore, we should welcome that argument. Because that exception to the rule actually shows 
that the natural order for reproduction must take place between a male and a female. And anything else attempted, it's unnatural. You can see it's unnatural and not by design. That natural ability to reproduce, that applies to same-sex marriage. But we don't need the ability to procreate as a defense that marriage is only to be honored between a male and a female. Because no argument for or against any issue, any issue, doesn't matter if it's for it or against it, no argument against any issue ever trumps the word of God. Ever. Period. And God says marriage is to be between a man and a woman. That settles the discussion. At least for the church. Now I'm... I know that we live in a state that predominantly promotes same-sex marriage. And we probably shouldn't like pull ourselves up. We live in a nation, in a world that promotes it. I know if we're heard opposing it, we're going to be labeled as public enemy. So that may tempt some of us to shy away from ever addressing the issue, ever addressing God's word and what it has to say about it with our neighbor. Maybe we tense up whenever someone asks us, hey, what's, what's the Bible say about same-sex marriage? Now, there's probably times you shouldn't talk about it. Say this conversation for after. But there are times that you should be faithful to respond. And, and and here's the application. Not your response is not to just go for the jugular. Right? I'm going to suggest using a different strategy for that conversation. This Genesis 2 gives us a wonderful opportunity to, to share truth in love. Instead of immediately just going from zero to 60, slow down. Slow down. Begin your response by showing them God's design for the institution of marriage. The way that he designed it is the only way that he intends it to be practiced. Show them what the word of God teaches. Start there. Show them how God designed it and why he designed it the way that he did. Then afterward, you can ask them, if God designed marriage to be lived within these perimeters, do you think it's wrong to go against these things? You can put the ball back in their court. You'll just have to answer, is, is, is homosexual marriage practice, whatever you want to ask, is it a sin? You don't just have to automatically just say, oh, one of the worst. Oh, let me show you where those who practice this. No, that's true. That's the reality. That's the reality for all who practice sexual immorality. They will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You don't have to start with that. You'll start with, let's rewind. Let's look at why God instituted marriage. There's still a really good chance they're going to disagree with you. But I think we can humbly explain God's framework for marriage in a truthful and kind manner. And, and I think this shows a better job of that. Than 
we should. We should explain it in a spiritual, but also kind manner. Number two, marriage is a covenant. I don't remember the preacher. I want to say it was Chuck Swindoll, but I could be wrong. I'll never forget what he said about this verse. Uh, uh, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He said, whenever you hear someone preach, a preacher preach this verse, all the English translations they use are, are incorrect. He says they never seem to be able to convey the actual meaning of the Hebrew language. He goes on to say the first time Adam saw Eve standing there after he woke up out of his deep slumber, and there was this beautiful creature just standing there waiting to be hitched, and God said, here she is, Adam. Adam's response was not, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He, he said his response was, hot God. So I, 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 it's, it's hard to nail that, but man, it really communicates. I, it's probably right. That's our Hebrew word for the day. There we go. Uh, in, in all seriousness, I'm sure he said that, but uh, well, maybe not. I thought he, he was thinking it. In all seriousness, Christian commentator Burton argues this phrase, my bone and my flesh, is actually a covenant formula and speaks not of a common birth, but of a common reciprocal loyalty. So what he's saying is, I'll, I'll be loyal to you, and you be loyal to me. His point is based off the same phrase in 2 Samuel 5.1, where the representatives of the northern tribe visit David at Hebron, and they say to him, we are your bone and your flesh. And here, Bergman rightly points out that this is not a statement of relationship as in, we have the same roots, or we've both been born from ribs or flesh. But rather, in 2 Samuel 5, 1, it's a pledge of loyalty. As in, we will support you in all kinds of circumstances. Taking that way. So if we, if we take that pledge of loyalty and say, oh, well, maybe that's what Moses is doing here. Well, then Adam's statement because it becomes a covenantal statement of his commitment to Eve. I think his argument has a lot of merit. Especially due to what what follows Adam's statement. Adam is, is declaring his, his, his pledge of loyalty to Eve. If Bergman's right, and his declaration in verse 23 is followed in verse 24 with, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In other words, these, these verses seem to be teaching once a man pledges his loyalty to his wife, and it's reciprocal, and vice versa, she pledges it to him, they become one unit. Adam is making an oath-bound commitment to his wife. As, as his wife, she's going to do the same, which means you, if, if you're married or ever witnessed one, you know, they look at each other. They say, I do. I do, I do, I will, I do, I promise, I will, I do. What are they saying? They're saying, hey, we're going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful to the vows I make to you today forever. The entirety of our marriage, I do. 
promise to have it all from this day forward. For better or worse, for richer or poorer. In sickness and in health. To love and to cherish until death do you part. Now, if you respond like I do to that point, then you just made a marital covenant with question. That's why many Christians believe, and maybe you might just believe, many believe that marriages shouldn't be done in private. Because those who attend the wedding are witnesses to the vows made between the newlyweds. And, and, and so those witnesses should not only pray for the marriage that they've witnessed, but also hold them accountable if they ever decide they no longer want to adhere to those vows. At that point, pick up the phone and say, hey, or go to their house, wherever, you know, wherever you get a hold of them. You signed up for this. Right? And you said, I do. If you remember your vows, you didn't just sign up for the better. You didn't sign up for the richer. You didn't sign up for the healthier. You didn't I don't think you signed up for this because you actually believe that, that that those nervous butterflies, that feeling you got in the pit of your stomach whenever you first started dating was going to last. Let's be honest. Get a feeling in the pit of your stomach, but it ain't butterflies. God doesn't permit us to believe the other person comes closer or closer. There's a few avenues of exit. God doesn't permit us to leave. Jesus makes that clear. He makes it Christmas there. He says, what God has joined together, let no one separate. No one. What God has joined together. There's a doctrine I'd love to walk out on that, but we don't have time. But at least what we can say is marriage isn't just two random people coming together and hoping for the best. And if it doesn't work out, that's so be it. Now, society does, but, but that's not what Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus is saying marriage is two people joined by God, bonded by the institution he created. And that binds them together until death. At least until one of them. All right. The relate, uh, number three, the relationship between the husband and the wife supersedes all other relations. Therefore, a man should leave his father and his mother. This might be more for the parents in this message. One of the funniest things, the first time I ever preached this passage, my in-laws were like, uh, I had to say, like, is this a coincidence? Is it? <laughs> no, just kidding. Uh, when it, <laughs> it just fell on that day. When a, when a son or daughter lives under the roof of their parents, they should abide by their rules. Absolutely. As their parents, we are their primary care and the ones responsible to instruct them. But once our sons and daughters get married, they're no longer under our dominion. That doesn't mean we can't give them advice. But over and over, parents tend
think that they are still ahead of the family, including their children's marriage. Therefore, they still try to be an authority always. Jesus has experienced that on an extreme level. It's one of the greatest disruptions between a husband and a wife. And this is what actually causes conflict. Husband and wife constantly fight. One may not even be aware of what he does. Taking their side again. You're taking her side again. You always take your mother's side. I hate going over to you. son or the daughter sides with their parents over the other spouse, of course the other spouse is going to become offended. And, and generally speaking, I think, I think they have a right to be offended. Because from design, we see that once a husband and wife marry, they're given the responsibility to govern their family. I, I know many parents think they know what's best. And honestly, you have a lot of wisdom. But what's best for the couple? And I think this is the part that goes under, even underestimated. What's best for the couple is not just your advice to always win. What's best for the couple is for them to make choices together. And without So application. Easy. Parents. Let go of the reins. Married couples. And now I'm speaking to you and skip one second. Don't undermine your spouse by taking your parents' side over them. Don't undermine your spouse. You may not even be aware of it, but I'll tell you, if you do it, your spouse knows, and it's not fun. Finally, the husband, head of the family, and the wife is his helper. The last thing to point out is that God ordained male headship within a nuclear family, which means, in short, the husband's the head of the family. He's the one who is primarily responsible for leading his family. He's responsible to protect his family, to provide for his family, to nourish his family. It's his obligation to make sure that his home is a place of worship. His duty to make sure that his home meets on the Lord's day. The wife's role, on the other hand, is to be her husband's helper, which means she contributes to the success of the family. And she takes part and helps cultivate it. As the helper, she is also responsible to submit to her husband's leadership. The Apostle Paul explains this in Ephesians 5. Wives. Submit yourselves to your own husband as you do the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, which he saved her. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husband's leadership. I know that the immediate response may be to assume that means the men are superior to women. Or that God cares more about... Are you just wondering, does God care more about men than he does women? Since women are the ones that are the helpers, since women are the ones that have to be. Nowhere in the Bible does God demonstrate his love by showing favoritism to a specific gender, ever. Nor does having a different role 
no matter if it's leading or submitting, nor does having a different role ever lessen your value. Ever. Uh, one, one commentator, it helps me elaborate on gender equality. He said the woman was created to help the man, not the other way around. We see that in the text today, and Paul draws from Genesis 2, so that marriage, the institution of marriage, did not change into the New Testament. But he says, however, this does not mean ontological superiority or inferiority. The Hebrew word for helper, when used in the Old Testament, 16 out of 19 times, signifies the woman's essential contribution, not inadequate. What's that mean? You just say, the husband and the wife have equal value in the eyes of God. husband is to lead as Christ. Paul doesn't just speak to the Ephesian wives. He speaks to the husbands, too. Husbands, lead as Christ. Husbands, love your wives. Lay down your life as Christ did for the church. Paul's point to the Ephesians. He's saying, look here, marriage class 101. Husbands and wives, you're supposed to learn how to function in your marriages, right? Here's, can I get a marriage teaching guide before I leave church today? Sure. The Bible. He says, look, and, and, and more importantly, zone in on Christ in the church. Because what Paul says is, listen, you're supposed to learn. We're supposed to learn how to function in our marriages by observing how Christ functions and how the church is supposed to function. We observe Christ and how he lived and how he died. And we observe the church's role and it's a law. Paul's saying that the husband's supposed to represent Christ and the wife's supposed to represent the church. And then it, and it goes furthermore in Ephesians it says, look, that representation is actually the ultimate purpose of your marriage. That's it. You probably don't get a lot of theology like that in a secular wedding. Maybe not even in a Christian wedding. But we're supposed to live in our marriages to bring glory to God. The way that the New Testament says, the way the Apostle Paul says, is the way that we bring glory to God is by his husband laying down his life, living sacrificial for his wife. Wife submitting to the church. That will manifest the glory of God. Here we find ourselves again in complete opposition to modern ideology. The Christian view is constantly under attack that we are oppressive toward women. I want to push back and say that the biblical distinction that we have actually values women more than society does. Now, now whether or not you agree with that, I just think for a moment. Society is fighting to prove a woman's worth is determined by eliminating all the differences between males and females. The Bible says a woman's worth is actually the one she's been created in the image of God. Two, her worth is determined by what makes her unique 
to the male sex. And that uniqueness, I mean, you know that women are different than men and can do some things that we do. Praise God. Some of them we don't want to do. And we're thankful that you are. Those distinctions are wonderful. Those uniquenesses should not be disregarded. They should be celebrated, not eliminated. Women, you are irreplaceable. You're amazing creatures. And, and husbands, I hope that the Lord, well, he's got it. I mean, I'm going to start myself. Husbands, I hope the Lord convicts your heart. So that you understand that your wife is an amazing creature worth laying down your life for. And then that's our application in marriage. To live as Christ. How are we doing? You think about this. By God's grace through His Spirit, we're trying. We want to meet with you, man. I know you men want to. There's how much damage we can do to our lives. Wanting to live as Christ. So let me ask you. We can do that much damage to our wives. How much damage is being done to the women out there who don't have husbands who are willing to lay down their lives? There's brokenness. We've got to move on to point number. That produce a fruitful marriage and change the world. Allow the word of God to shape you. The Bible teaches a husband and a wife who follow God's design will be provided with some of the greatest blessings that God has to offer. Marriages are they're intended to be healthy, satisfying, fulfilling, joyful, united. Faithful. Do you realize that God wants your marriage to have joy? He wants it to be faithful. He wants you to be united, satisfied, fulfilled. And that type of marriage doesn't happen on its own. It requires a husband and a wife to function as God intended. And the only way that we can know how to function as God intended is to, to live as He laid it out. Genesis 2 is not the end. Ephesians 5, for that matter, is not the only part of the Bible that we need to know in order to be the best wife or the best husband. Paul Tripp said this well. You can't just open the Bible and turn to the passages about marriage in order to find out all you need to know about marriage. Which means that it takes, as it takes the entire Bible to make a complete Christian, what he's saying is, it takes the, uh, the entire Bible to complete a marriage. Allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to transform you into the person God desires you to be your spouse. Two, be intent. Whoa. Oh, be intent to make time for Christian fellowship. God said it's not good for man to be alone. No, it's not. And when we get married, men, we're not bad folks. Any longer. That took me 
time in the barracks to figure that out. And my wife helped by telling me. So. One of the greatest principles in life to remember is that we're not created on this earth to live our lives isolated. And while that principle goes for multiple relationships in our life, like the local church and Christianity, we're not supposed to, we're not intended to live our Christian life isolated from the local church. None of them. Nothing is more important than the relationship between the husband and the wife. We get a glimpse of that here in Genesis 2 when we observe the type of companion that God gave Adam. And in, in verse 20, look, look, I mean, what's Adam? He's naming all the animals. He realizes, look, none of these are suitable companions. He, he's, and he's soaking up God's creation before sin enters. He's got God. Access to God. But what does he He doesn't have any discussion. So God makes it clear that, look, it's not good for man to be alone. And so God gives him a wife. Your spouse understood you. 
they'd already know there ain't nothing that's worth understanding. But if you're involved in that type of relationship, here's an application of it. You are potentially the enemy. You cannot keep your hand over fire. Enjoy physical intimacy. Don't neglect it. First Corinthians 7. The husband should fulfill his parents' duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourself to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self control. Now, before you start asking about the exception, what about? But what about? But what about? The only exception that Paul gives is what? If you agree to devote yourselves to prayer, not for nothing, but I doubt. Physical intimacy between a wife and a husband is being neglected across the homes of this world, this nation, because people are too busy praying. Too much English. I just want to give a quick word for my singers. Waiting, man pure. Wait upon the Lord. You know a single person who desperately wants to unite, wants to be married. Remain sure it's worth it. Wait upon the Lord and rejoice when God provides you with a spouse. You know, but I am not on the Lord's 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 And it took a long time for the Lord to give my name. Look how much he's benefited from that. So, you know, I mean, My widows, and to my divorce, you don't have to be married to be useful or effective to the kingdom of God, and, and to be useful and effective to encourage a person, even if marriage is struggling. You do not have to be married. Just thinking about Luke too, prophet is there. Anna went to the temple to pray every day. She was a widow. She wasn't married anymore. She was a widow. Prayed every day. 
by God. How did he answer? He revealed his salvation and redemption. He advent. He revealed advent to her. She got to see it before she was removed. See, your prayers are just for you. Your encouragement in your lives just is
Christ and forgive one another. Yeah, I mean, 